0: Rather, the deliberate choice like that of Moses, verses 24 to 26. Any day, any one of these wanderers could have rejoined their fellow men, enjoyed their society, and shared their comforts, but they preferred this lot to apostasy. End of quote. Being destitute, afflicted, tormented, These terms set forth the variety and intensity of the sufferings experienced by the homeless saints. Destitute means they were deprived of the ordinary necessities of life, and further signifies they were denied the kind assistance of relatives and friends, they were driven forth without the means of subsistence, and were beyond the reach of succor from all who cared for them. Afflicted probably has reference to their state of mind. They were not emotionalist stoics, but felt acutely their sad condition. No doubt the enemy took full advantage of their state and injected many unbelieving and harassing thoughts into their minds. Tormented is rather too strong a word here. We understand the reference to be unto the ill-treatment they met with from the unfriendly strangers encountered in their wanderings, who regarded them without any pity and evilly treated them, of whom the world was not worthy. This parenthetic clause is brought in here for the purpose of removing an objection Many might suppose that these despised wanderers were only receiving their just due as not being fit to live in decent society. To remove this scandal, the apostle put the blame where it rightly belonged, affirming that it was society which was unworthy of having the saints of God in their midst. In its wider aspect, the world here takes in the whole company of the ungodly but in its narrower sense, that of the context, it has reference to the apostate world. All history, sacred and secular, is harmonious on this point. The most merciless, conscienceless, cruel, and inveterate persecutors of God's elect have been religious people, of whom the world was not worthy. Here we see the difference between God's estimate and that of unregenerate religionists concerning the children of faith. God regards them as the excellent of the earth, in whom is his delight. Psalm 16.3 William Gouge said, A true believer, by reason of his union with Christ and of the abode of the Spirit of sanctification in him, is worth more than a million worlds, as a rich and precious jewel is of more worth than many loads of filthy mud. The excellency of saints appears also in the benefit and blessings which they bring to the places where they reside. They are the salt of the earth, though the corrupt multitude around them realize it not. Their presence stays the hand of divine judgment. Genesis 19.22 Brings down blessing, Genesis thirty twenty-seven, and their prayers secure divine healing. Genesis twenty verse seventeen. How little does the world realize how much it owes to those whom they hate so bitterly? They wandered in deserts and in mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. Not only were they without a settled habitation, but they were compelled to resort to desolate places and the dens of wild beasts in order to escape the fury of their foes. The word for wandering here is different from the one used in the previous verse. There it signifies to go up and down from house to house or town to town in hope of finding succor, but in which they were disappointed. Here the term denotes a wandering in unknown territory, going like a blind man, they knew not whither. It. it is the term used of Abraham in verse 8, and of Hagar in Genesis 16 verse 6, and of wandering sheep in Matthew eighteen twelve. What a commentary upon fallen human nature! These saints of God were safer among the beasts of the field than in the religious world, inflamed by the devil. While these lines are being read, there are probably some of God's children in foreign lands suffering these very experiences. Seeing that faith in the living God will alone support the soul under manifold trials, how necessary it is that we labor in the fear of the Lord to get our hearts rooted and grounded in the truth, so that when afflictions or persecutions come, we may be enabled to to show forth the power and fruits of this spiritual grace. Faith has to overcome the fear of man as well as the love of the world. Whatever sufferings God may appoint in the path of duty, they are to be patiently borne as seeing Him who is invisible. Their enemies clothe death in the most hideous and horrible forms that hatred could devise, yet The faith of those saints boldly met and endured it. How thankful we should be that God's restraining hand is still upon the reprobate, for human nature has not improved any. Chapter 27 The Family of Faith Hebrews 11, 39 and 40 And these all Having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Verses 39 and 40. Several details in these verses call for careful consideration. First, to what does the promise here refer to? Second, In what sense had the Old Testament saints not received the promise? Third, what is the better thing which God provided for us? Fourth, what is here meant by be made perfect? Widely different answers have been returned to these questions, and even the most reliable of the commentators are by no means agreed. Therefore, it would ill become us, to speak dogmatically where men of God differ. Instead of wearying the reader with their diverse views, we will expound our text according to what measure of light God has granted us upon it. As we approach our task, there are several considerations which need to be borne in mind, the observing of which should aid us not a little. First, ascertaining the relation of our text, to that which precedes. Second, discovering the exact relation of its several clauses. Third, studying it in the light of the distinctive and dominant theme of the particular epistle in which it occurs. Fourth, weighing its leading terms in connection with their usage in parallel passages. If these four things be duly attended to, we ought not to go far wrong in our interpretation. Our purpose in enumerating them is principally to indicate to your preachers the methods which should be followed in the critical examination of any difficult passage. As to the connection between our present verses and those which precede, there is no difficulty. The apostle having so forcibly and largely set out the virtue and vigor of faith by the admirable workings and fruits thereof, both in doing and in suffering, now gives a general summary. They all obtained a good report. The relation of the several clauses of our text to each other may be set out thus, and these all refer to to the entire company which has been before us in the previous verses. A good report is ascribed to them, yet they had not received the promise, because God had provided something better for the New Testament saints. The dominant theme of Hebrews is the immeasurable superiority of Christianity over Judaism. The leading terms in our text will be pondered in what follows. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, two things are here in view, the persons spoken of and that which is predicated of them. The reference is to all spoken of in the previous parts of the chapter, and by necessary inference to all believers before the incarnation of Christ who exhibited a true faith. William Gurge wrote, Many more than these lived before Christ was exhibited, yea, lived in the time and place that some of these did, yet received no good report. Cain lived and offered a sacrifice with Abel, yet was none of these. Ham was in the ark with Shem, Ishmael in Abraham's family with Isaac, Esau in the same room with Jacob, Dathan, and a came through the Red Sea with Caleb and Joshua. Many other wicked unbelievers were mixed with believers, yet they obtained not any such good report. Though their outward condition was alike, yet their inward disposition was much different. End of quote. Thus it is today. There are two widely different classes of people who come under the sound of the word, those who believe it. And those who believe it not, and those of the former class, have also to be divided. For while there are a few in whom that word works effectually in a spiritual way, many have nothing more than a natural faith in its letter. This latter faith, which so many today mistake for a saving one, is merely an intellectual assent to the divine authority of the Bible and to the verities of its contents, like that possessed by most of the Jews of Christ's day, and which, though good so far as it goes, changes not the heart, nor issues in a godly life. A supernatural faith which is wrought in the soul by the operations of the Holy Spirit issues in supernatural works, such as those attributed unto the men and women mentioned in Hebrews 11. It is a divine principle which enables its possessor to overcome the world, patiently endure the sores to frictions, and love God and His truth more than life itself. Having obtained a good report through faith, because of their trusting in Christ alone for salvation, and because of their walking in subjection to His revealed will, they received approbation. There is probably a threefold reference in the words now before us. First, unto God's own testimony which He bore to them. This is found in His Word, where their names receive honorable mention, and where the fruits of their faith are imperishably preserved. Second, to the spirits bearing witness with their spirit that they were the children of God. Romans 8.16 the rejoicing which they had from the testimony of a good conscience. Second Corinthians 1 verse 20 This in blessed contrast from the world's estimate of them who regarded and treated them as the offscoring of all things. Third, To the esteem in which they were held by the church, their fellow saints testifying to the unworldliness of their lives, This shows our faith should be evidenced by such good works that it is justified before men. Received not the promise. The singular number here implies some preeminent, excellent thing promised. And this is Jesus Christ, the Divine Saviour. He is said to be given according to the promise, Acts 13.23. God's promise was declared to be fulfilled when he brought Christ forth acts thirteen thirty two and thirty three in acts two thirty nine and twenty six six Christ is set forth under this term promise. Christ himself is the prime promise, not only because he was the substance of the first promise given after the fall genesis 315 but also because He is the complement or accomplishment of all the promises. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 30 The great promise of God to send His Son, born of a woman, to save His people from their sins, was the object of faith of the Church throughout all the generations of the Old Testament era. Therein we may discern the rich grace of God in providing for the spiritual of needs, of his saints from earliest times, received not the promise. As several times before in the epistle, promises here used metonymically for the thing promised. And this it is which explains they received not. As Owen expressed, the promise as a faithful engagement of future good they received. But the good thing itself was not in their days exhibited. Unquote. They did not live to see historically accomplished that which their faith specifically embraced. As the Lord Jesus declared to his disciples, many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. Matthew thirteen seventeen. Herein we behold the strength and perseverance of faith that they continued to look unwaveringly for so many centuries for him that should come and came not in their lifetime. God having provided some better thing for us, the verb here looks back to the eternal counsels of divine grace to the everlasting covenant. It is a word which denotes God's determination designation and appointment of Christ to be the propitiatory sacrifice and the exact season for His advent. When the fullness of the time was come, the season ordained by heaven, God sent forth His Son, Galatians 4, verse 4. Thus it should be clear that the contrast which is pointed in the sentence before us Is that between the promise given and the promise performed? It is at that point, and no other, we find the essential difference between the faith of the Old Testament saints and the faith of the New Testament saints. The one looked forward to a Savior that was to come, the other looks back to a Savior who has come. It seems strange that. What is really so obvious and simple should have been regarded by many as obscure and difficult. In his great crowd of witnesses, E. W. Bullinger began his comments on this passage by saying, These verses must be among those to which Peter referred when he said, speaking of Paul's epistles, there are some things hard to be understood, for they confessedly present no small difficulty.'" But what is there here which is hard to be understood? The very epistle in which this verse occurs supplies a sure key to its correct interpretation. As we have said here, the great theme of it is the immeasurable superiority of Christianity over Judaism. And those of our readers who have followed us through this series of expositions We'll recall how many illustrations of this have been before us. Another one is present in chapter 11, verses 39 and 40. They received not the fulfillment of the promise. We have, God having provided some better thing for us. Compare chapter 7, verses 19 and 22, chapter 8, verse 6, 9, verse 23, 10, verse 34 for the word better. It is really pathetic and deplorable to see what most of the moderns make of our present verse. In their anxiety to magnify the contrast between the Mosaic and Christian economies, and in their ignorance of much of the contents of the Old Testament Scriptures, they have seized upon these words God having provided some better thing for us to bolster up one of their chief errors, and have read into them that which anyone having even a superficial acquaintance with the Psalms and prophets should have no difficulty in perceiving to be utterly untenable. Some have said that better thing which we Christians have is eternal life. Others, that it is regeneration and the indwelling of the Spirit. Others, that it is membership in the body of Christ with the heavenly calling that entails, denying that these blessings were enjoyed by any of the Old Testament saints, such as a fair example of the rubbish which is now to be found in most of the ministry, oral and written, of this degenerate age. In their crude and arbitrary attempts to rightly divide the world of truth Those calling themselves dispensationalists have wrongly divided the family of God. The entire election of grace have God for their Father, Christ for their Savior, the Holy Spirit for their Comforter. All who are saved from the beginning to the end of earth's history are the objects of God's everlasting love, share alike in the benefits of Christ's atonement, and are begotten by the Spirit unto the same inheritance. God communicated to Abel the same kind of faith as he does to his children today. Abraham was justified in precisely the same manner as Christians are now. Romans 4. Moses bore the reproach of Christ and had respect unto the identical recompense of the reward. Hebrews 11.26 As is said before us, David was as truly a stranger and pilgrim on earth as we are, Psalm 119, verse 19, and looked unto the same eternal pleasures at God's right hand as we do, Psalm 16, verse 11, and 23, verse 6. The worst mistakes made by the dispensationalists go out of their failures at the following points. First, to see the organic union between the Mosaic and Christian economies, second, to perceive that the Old Covenant and the New Covenant were but two different administrations under which the blessings of the everlasting covenant are imparted, third, to distinguish between the spiritual remnant and the nation itself. The relation between the patriarchal and the Mosaic dispensations and this Christian era May be stated thus. They stood to each other partly as the beginning does to the end, and partly as the shell does to the kernel. The former were preparatory, the latter is the full development. First the blade in the patriarchal dispensation, then the ear, the mosaic, and now the full corn in the ear in this Christian era. In the former, We have the type and shadow, in the latter, the anti-type and substance. Christianity is but the full development of what existed in former ages, or a grander exemplification of the truths and principles which were then revealed. The great fact that the everlasting covenant which God made with Christ as the head of His church formed the basis of all His dealings with His people and that the terms and blessings of that eternal charter were being administered by him under the Old and New Covenants, may be illustrated from secular history. In practically every country there are two chief political parties. The policy, and particularly the methods followed by these rival factions, differ radically, yet though the one may succeed the other in power and though great changes mark their alternative regimes, and though many diverse laws may be enacted or cancelled from time to time, yet the fundamental constitution of the country remains unchanged. Thus it is, under the Mosaic and Christian economies, widely different as they are in many incidental details. Nevertheless, God's moral government is always according to the same fundamental principles of grace and righteousness, mercy and justice, truth and faithfulness, in the one era equally as much as in the other. The distinction between the regenerated remnant and the unregenerate nation during Old Testament times is as real and radical as that which now exists, between real Christians and the multitude of empty professors with which Christendom abounds. Yea, one is the type of the other. Just as empty professors now possess a form of godliness, but are destitute of its power, so the great bulk of the lineal descendants of Abraham were occupied only with the externals of Judaism. Witness the scribes and Pharisees of Christ's day, and... Just as the lifeless religionists of our time are taken up with the letter of the word and have no experimental acquaintance with its spiritual realities, so the unquickened Israelites of old were engaged with the outward shell of their ritual but never penetrated to its kernel. There was an election within an election, a remnant, who were Jews inwardly, Romans 2.29, among the great companies surrounding them who were Jews only in name outwardly. The spiritual portion of that Old Testament remnant of God's saints was identically the same as that of the Christians now. They were the recipients of the free gift of grace in Christ, Genesis six eight, as we are. They possessed eternal life, Psalm 133, verse 3, as truly as we do. They rejoiced in the knowledge of sins forgiven Psalm thirty two one and two as heartily as we do. They were as really instructed by the Spirit Nehemiah nine twenty as we are. Nor were they left in total ignorance of the glorious future awaiting them. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. Hebrews 11:13 and 14 The word for country there is not the ordinary one, cora, but patris, which signifies homeland or fatherland, such a country as one's father dwells in. The question then returns upon us. Seeing the Old Testament saints enjoyed all the essential spiritual blessings of which Christians now partake, exactly what is the better thing which God provides for us? The answer is a superior administration of the everlasting covenant. Chapter 7, verse 22. In what particular respects? Chiefly in these. First, We now have a better view of Christ than the Old Testament saints had. They saw him chiefly through the types and promises, whereas we view him in the accomplishments and fulfillment of them. Second, there is now a broader foundation for faith to rest upon. They looked for a Christ who was to come and who would put away their sins. We look at a Christ who has come, and who has put away our sins. Third, they were as minors under teachers and governors, whereas we are in the position, dispensationally, of those who have attained their maturity. Galatians 4, verses 1 to 7. Fourth, there is now a wider outpouring of God's grace. It is no longer confined to an elect remnant in one nation, but reaches out to his favoured people scattered among all nations. That they without us should not be made perfect. The law of Mosaic economy made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did. Hebrews 7.19 The perfecting of a thing consists in the well-finishing of it, and the full accomplishment of all things pertaining thereto. There is no doubt that the ultimate reference of our text is to the eternal glory of the whole family of faith in heaven, yet we believe it also includes the various degrees by which that perfection is attained, and the means thereunto.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books.